But rather than just eating in the, in the restaurant, can they go and have, is there a creative space where people can go and do things, whether it's um, talk with people over a cup of coffee, whether it's doing yoga, Pilates, whether it's doing art, whether it's writing something, whether it's doing pottery. People want to connect nowadays. The research is showing that people connect their creative talents as well as their work talents, the ones who are the most productive. So how do we create spaces that bring both together to allow higher productivity? Welcome to Food Service Matters, where we bring you cutting edge conversations with industry leaders in the food service sector. I am your host, Patrick McDermott, the CEO of Digitally. And in each episode, my guest and I will delve into the key challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry, highlighting the latest trends and creating a dynamic space for discussions about the future of this sector. Join us as we explore the world of food service and discover the latest innovations and best practices that are shaping our sector. Welcome to Food Service Matters with me, Patrick McDermott. Our guest today is Chris Shepherdson, founder and managing director of EP Business in Hospitality, a key communicator in the industry that regularly publishes articles and hosts events to encourage industry collaboration and knowledge sharing. I'll be talking to Chris about the changes COVID-19 has brought about for the food service sector, including the effect it has on industry leaders, employees, and customers. Chris also shares his opinions on the use of technology to empower people and the importance of nurturing entrepreneurship and building trusted industry partnerships. So let's get started. Chris Shepherdson, you're welcome to Food Service Matters. Thank you for joining us. If you wouldn't mind just starting, tell us about you and about EP. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks. Uh, very nice to join. Um, EP is being established for 19 years, and it is really established to bring industry leaders to get together to share knowledge, share ideas, and to collaborate. I think it's fair to say that that whole message has probably taken off more, in, funnily enough, since COVID broke out. And we've probably seen far more interaction. We always say good interaction, but it seems to have taken a whole step up since COVID, where people really do want to come together and share ideas and understand the importance of alliances. In fairness, this whole concept was taught to me by an old industry elder, yet, um, a guy, a gentleman called Mike Stringer, you know, who had a one of the leading food service companies who always talked about strategic alliances. And his argument was always people working together is always far more effective than someone working silo. And that's basically the core of our philosophy. So stronger together and combining and connecting people. Connecting people, but connecting business. And we were facilitators, aren't we? In, in truth, for middlemen and consultants. It is about how do we bring people together to share knowledge so we're all stronger and better. How do you bring people together? We publish articles every um, we, we kind of get known for original thinking or thinking differently about top. Um, I'm not sure we do. We just listen. I always say we listen. Um, and it's listening to what people say and then kind of sending that back to market so people can debate it. We run about 70 events a year bringing people together to debate those issues. And of course, like anything, the more you build a community, the more you share knowledge, the more value you become both to the community and the more that community grows as well. You mentioned the C word, COVID. We've now moved <laughs> on a couple of years. Is it still in people's minds or have they blanked that out and are now moving on and 
on a different trajectory? Or where would you say that is it, is it still something that's part of people's lives? Um, that's a good question. I'd say this is the first year that people are postcode. So I think everyone sees this, whatever the new trading norm is, this is the new trading norm. And actually there are no more excuses to be made. We're now trading and we're back at, back at whatever full capacity is and we're off. Uh, does COVID get raised? Yes. Um, it's still people are suffering from COVID, but that's not going to go away. Um, but it's coming less and less the whole time. And actually, I think people are struggling to even remember sometimes the pandemic. It's almost like it's almost like it was a long time ago, strangely. Uh, people remember it, but it does feel like a long time ago now. Selective ab- amnesia, trying to, to put it so far to the back of their mind, hopefully never to be repeated. And with the, how has it affected the sector then? Because a lot of people, when it comes to financial management, are, are using 2019 as, a, as, as the benchmark. So and forgetting about those 2021, 20, 22, and are now moving, moving forward, like you said. But what do you think is the biggest hangover from the COVID era? It's, a, it's really interesting, isn't it? The, I think COVID has changed the sector more than people realize. Um, and it's almost like this is now a new chapter. And what I mean by that, if you go back to, I'd say, 2009 to 2019, post-financial crash, there was a set model that people worked to, and that was the accepted norm. There weren't any new players that really came into the marketplace. It became a very mature model, I think it's fair to say. And I think the sector wasn't particularly innovative. If I'm, there's no criticism to anybody, I just don't think it's very innovative. I don't think it's very forward thinking. And actually, I think a lot of people got quite frustrated and disengaged. I think COVID actually, ironically, has changed that. We've seen new players set up. I think we've got five, six new players set up in the last year and if you talk to them they'll say covid was the catalyst for that because again they rediscovered relationships they rediscovered their desire for service uh, they saw it gave covid gave an opportunity for younger smaller players to win business one of the interesting comments was some people won business and those people came back because those contracts grew and they would never have won the pre-covid but it gave them a chance to win them and establish themselves uh, which has changed things it put the covid put big players under pressure but coming out, I think everyone understands, particularly clients, that no one has all the answers. Therefore, let's, let's have better collaboration, let's have better partnership. And that's changing the model as well. So we are seeing a move away from what I call the old command and control, or a kind of contract, you know, this contract supply piece, to one which is more collaborative, more about trusted partnerships, greater openness, transparency, which actually leads to better alignment, better objectives, and better discussions. So actually, I think, We'll look back on COVID as being a remarkably tough and challenging, and it has been remarkably tough, tough and challenging. And it hasn't been helped by Brexit, and it hasn't been helped by Ukraine war, supply chain, inflation, everything. So it's not just, um, but coming out of it, I think we're actually coming out into a better place. So what are the blockers to making that happen? Because what you're saying there makes a lot of sense. And there's lots of different factors, and it's not just as simple as having better relationships. But what are they? What are the blockers that's stopping us well, from, I think from the, having that? Yeah, I think what's, I think there's two parts of this, and, and it gets quite controversial, so I'm delicate, so I do understand. We, the, the sector made food service consultants quite powerful in the sector. The food service consultants themselves felt they were very controlled by the procurement companies of their clients. Um, 
but the reality of food service consultants, however brilliant they are, most of them are quite small businesses who are holding quite a lot of influence over large, very large companies. It doesn't work as a balance. The balance was out of sync, which was natural. And it's because we got to a mid-share model. It's because there was a lack of trust across that model um, and people felt it wasn't open and transparent. So that came a debate. It wasn't no one's fault. It just no one. It just wasn't the right. wasn't the right balance in the sector. I think what we're seeing now is that openness because clients, the client organisations, are squeezed by their CFOs and their boards asking for return to work and how the budgets work, etc. Uh, they're looking for new answers to get people back to work, which is changing. We'll get onto that and so because um, it's quite fascinating how that's. Um, and the food service companies are looking to how can they improve services to get people back to work? How do we create new experiences to see people come back? And what it's meaning is the consultants too have to change and actually are becoming the real middle people, experts and advisors between both sides. Rather than having the power, they're suddenly becoming that, 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 that link that towards that open, trusted conversation that probably didn't exist before. So actually, I think a better balance has been found as a result We've had to go for a curve to get there, but there is a better balance coming out as a result of this. And so within food service, particularly with the B&I sector, when you have when they're dependent on full offices, how have you seen the changes uh, in the last two years? Yeah, look, it's been remarkably tough, hasn't it? Let's be fair. Look, I think the big, the big change now is that we are probably back to about 80% density in London over the course of the week, which is probably as good as you're going to get. Um, outside London, I think there's still a lag. And sometimes you go to the, some of the regional cities and you, you do feel it's still, it's still lagging below that. Uh, so the companies have had to adapt naturally. And you've seen contracts turn back, reverse back to one more cost plus basis, which has helped everybody as well. Now, naturally, this, all, these contracts are all going to evolve in different ways. Um, but I think the really interesting discussion that's taking place now is all about how do we get people wanting to come back to the office? And when they do come back to the office, how do we improve productivity? Now, if you go back to pre-COVID, and I think this is the important piece, we got ourselves, and I'm not talking about the food service sector, I'm talking about all business, it got itself into a bad spot because the average lunch break was only 19 minutes long, which isn't very long. And actually, the average working day had increased by about an average four to four and a half hours per day from 20 to the year 2000. Because with mobile phones, laptops, iPads, we all work from the moment we get up to almost the moment we get to go to sleep. So you've increased the working day and you've actually reduced the amount of time that people get to spend to chill and relax during the day. And then you wonder why you get bad Bad product, productivity falls down, and productivity was probably at a real low ebb in 2000. Office culture was at a low ebb in 2019. Um, and you wonder why people don't want to come back to the office. They're, they were tired or exhausted. You only got to look at the Vitality Healthiest Company reports, and they're quite concerning. I mean, the average amount of sick days and presenteeism per employee averaged around 36 days per year. And the amount of people who, who felt stressed or under pressure something like 48 percent it wasn't it was not a healthy environment and we seem to lose perspective for a lot of the basics we all talked about when we were probably when i say we because i'm getting age getting older all the time young when we talked about having fun at work and in those days you did have a one-hour lunch break and you did have time to go and refresh and you worked less hours um and, you know 
and it was a completely different era and relationships were more important. And I think we lost, we lost perspective on relationships. We lost perspective on trust. And actually, I think that's the really good bit out of this. It, the last few years has refocused us all onto what's really important. And I think relationships and trust have grown and improved. And I think coming back to the workplace, people do want now to make sure that people feel they really want to be in their workplace and be productive. And there's a place that's positive. So if the and what we're seeing is, is new services emerge as a result. Yeah, so it's a, it's a case of a refocus by business of quality over quantity. And then they're seeing food service as being part of the solution to bring, coming up with more innovative food ideas and more creativity in order to, to enhance the, the return to the office. Yeah, so the food service piece is key. I mean, I always remember the old days, people like going to the office because you always got some really good food service. Um, and actually, I think that's still a major differential to everybody. Great food service does bring people together, connects them socially. I think the pressure of actually having a proper, of having short breaks is the key bit to change. And I think the, the change we're seeing coming in is your company, the companies you're bringing leisure into the office are the ones who have seen the better return to work. So companies who are bringing, you know, yoga, Pilates, but also music, what I call um, creative arts, art, funnily enough, all these things that actually connect people. There's a real movement back to people wanting to connect back to what I call traditional crafts. So if you can do something that brings that in, and actually people are seeing the bring a, a return, a better return to the office, interesting. It changes then the atmosphere of the office as well. Because as part of my snooping, in advance of our chat, I had seen a recent article from yourselves about replacing the one hour lunch break. Tell me more. Yeah, the, the, people snack more than they used to. So in the old days, everyone went for you know, a good lunch. Now people snack more and that's not going to change. And they probably, everyone's healthier, eat less. So the question is, can you then create, and what we're talking in discussions about, can we create spaces that allow people to be creative during that time. They still have the one hour, but rather than just eating the, in the restaurant, can they go and have, is there a creative space where people can go and do things, whether it's um, talk with people over a cup of coffee, whether it's doing yoga, Pilates, whether it's doing art, whether it's writing something, whether it's doing pottery. People want to connect nowadays. The research is showing that people connect their creative talents as well as their work talents are the ones who are the most productive. So how do we create spaces that bring both together to allow higher productivity? So it's not just coming back into the office for the ad hoc water cooler conversations. It really is that connection with people. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the conversations we've all heard, it's natural, isn't it? Are, are a bit simplistic about the water cooler thing. It's all a bit simplistic. Now, what people want is something a bit deeper than that. And actually, what they've done in their daily lives has changed where they do spend time doing other activities now. And interestingly, we did some research about heritage sites during COVID and having heritage sites saw an average of 26% uptick, upturn in actually people visiting those sites during the day. Normally it's people going for a walk around lunchtime around a heritage site. But some of the things we saw, people wanted to connect to their local heritage, their local history, because it actually made them feel connected to their community. And it's the same with the arts. Funny enough, as we get more, as we kind of progressive and more modern and more technology takes off, I think there's a side of us that always wants to go back and be more connected to other things. Now, so we're seeing other other parts taking off at the same time. 
which I think then opens new doors for new services for hospitality, which is actually quite exciting. So to us, it's a bit like what, what we're talking about. It's a bit like a gym for the mind. So rather than just doing the physical piece, you can actually do something which actually appeals to the mind and soul as well. Makes a lot of sense. You, you, there was an event recently that you put on along with the with Alex Partners in December, which was the the annual food service report. And one of the the main topics was ESG and where that ranks with food service businesses and also with their customers. Tell me about ESG and the role that that plays and how that's changed over the last number of years. Oh my God, so um, Patrick. I mean, there's, I think there's a number of points out of that report. That report. I think firstly, ESG had fallen down from second to fourth in priorities, and the question is, is that actually true? I think the point. I think what the research stressed was that relationships had risen up rather than ESG had fallen. So relationships came at second leading priority. And I think that is encouraging that people getting back to relationships and building trust back into play. Um, in terms of ESG, I think it's fundamental, and I think it's fundamental on everyone's agenda now, which is, um, I think everyone's very conscious of the environment. I mean, I think it's fair to say that event, uh, John Davies from Levy captured people's imagination talking about it is time that, you know, basically saying that it's time that we stop putting our own genders into place and we started thinking bigger and put environment and our children's future further up the scale and actually the way we actually get our supply chain and how we work with suppliers better and we can make real genuine change um, and I think he caught everyone's imagination with that and I think there is a the environment piece undoubtedly resonates with everyone particularly younger generations coming through I think the other piece is all about social agendas nowadays you know, quite rightly how, how do companies interact with communities? What role do they play in communities? And what difference can they make? And I think hospitality, again, COVID has done this, has, can play such a key role in the community, in bringing people together, in making the, giving the place for the lonely, in making a real difference. I mean, Thomas Frank's made a huge difference with their Feeding Communities campaign during COVID, which helped those who were struggling probably to get, um, I think that what they did was quite remarkable. Compass did a lot of great work as well. And a lot of companies did some great, uh, absolute taste, lots, lots of organizations. I mean, hospitality really stepped to the fore. But again, it, to me, it highlights how society has changed because all the traditional pillars of society that we probably grew up with don't exist in the same way. I mean, the, the, the kind of, the, the town lawyers probably called more into question than it probably was days. Uh, the same with the family doctor. Do you actually get them out anymore? There's always a question. So the hospitality professional is probably more important in society and in communities than ever. And there's a real role coming out. And I think as we come out, hospitality is far more central and has a far bigger role to play, which actually is exciting. And how do you see that shaping the future? Because it's going to be one of the sustainability is going to be one of the largest parts and such a big part of the ESG agenda. Where do you see the future actually going with it? I think hospitality has a key role to play in ESG. With all the food miles and how we manage that, all, this, all the environmental bit and how we work with suppliers, how we change the way we do farming, all of that comes into play. But to me, again, my focus is often much more on the social side, I accept. But to me, I think hospitality has a real positive role to play in society. And I think communities are coming together now in a way I haven't seen for since the 80s, early 90s. So look, I think I think that what you're seeing is a much more progressive society. And I think I think... When I look back to some of the kind of conferences we ran in 2019 and some of the 
forward projections then, we've actually come forward 10, 15 years in, the, in that five-year period. So I th- actually, I, you know, COVID, is, as horrible it's been, as, and, and as much of a chance it's been, it has actually been remarkably progressive and seen a lot of good. Where will technology come into play? Because technology, it's someone said to me a number of years ago, every business is a technology business whether they like it or not, it could be serving food, but there's still always elements of technology. Where do you see the role of uh, tech in the future within food service and hospitality? Well, it looks absolutely central. I mean, again, it's one of the debates we're having. Our debate is a slightly different. Our, our focus is different. Our view is technology frees and empowers people. And I think technology in the past times is used to control a bit, and now the difference is it's being used, people are focused on how, to, how can they empower people, how can they help people, how can they support people, and business be better. So if you, you know, if you just I know, take your own product and have the impact you can have on GPs, the immediate impact you can have on GPs is huge, which takes the pressure off the operator. So to me, it's about technology freeing time up, which is crucial. It's easing the pressure on people. But it's actually also enabling better service and where the real debate and where the real conversation now is coming, which has been enabled by technology, is how service levels will, there's a real pride in service. And there's a real pride on how do we actually give customer care. And what you're seeing, I think, in hospitality is a real shift and a growing awareness of the kindness and care hospitality gives people. And I think the whole service mentality is taking a real steep uh, step forward. And it's all enabled, if I'm honest, by being freeing up time and stress through technology. Can you give me the best example as to where you would have seen technology being used really well? Because I know robotics is a, is a, a, an element of passion for yourself when it comes to using that. And when sometimes when people think robotics, they think large machines ready to take over the earth. But it can be a lot simpler than that. Have you seen an example of it actually being used in a way that's making a difference? Yeah, look, I mean, one love is um, room service. So we work with a company called SoftBank Robotics, as you know, uh, who, are, who have created that have a, a robot who can literally go from the kitchen to someone's room uh, to deliver food, which I think is far better than the service level we probably used to see in the old days. I think most of us used to hate room service, best will in the world, um, and actually found it a bit intrusive. Now having a robot come is a bit of, is a bit of humor, uh, a bit of fun, and actually probably a better service level. I think also the, the kind of cleaning robots flying around actually build awareness and build trust actually in the consumer. The consumer is far more trusting of robots than the operator. The operator is taking more time to adapt than the consumer, interestingly. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm a great fan of that, but I'm a great fan of all technology, actually. I can't do it myself, I'd be the first to say that. But actually, it does, it's all about how it enables you, enables your time. So the one thing about technology, it, Everything about it, it reduces the pressure on the finance, it, impre- it reduces the pressure on your day, and, and gives you time to reflect, uh, which is actually probably what was lost between 2009 2019. It's interesting that you said that it, it, people have more trust within the robotics when the, the reality could be that technology and it is watching, hearing, listening a lot more than nearly what you'd want them to be doing in cases. It's the whole point of interesting to get upset about that, which I find quite interesting but i guess they kind of grown up haven't they with social media and the whole goldfish um, so i understand that the real hard bit for operators is trust in the sharing of data and this this is the first generation that's probably having to overcome that and as that's overcome it will ease up 
So the real trust is can I really share and be open about my management information, my data, and will it be used in the right way, which is a natural concern. As that gets overcome, then it would, the whole process will advance and be more progressive. But is that is that you know we've all we all have our barriers up when it comes to sharing a bit. It's understandable, um, but it's that's just what's changing. So, as I think younger generations are so used to it, aren't they? Technology. Um, so I think as we go forward, we'll just get faster and more progressive the whole time. Yeah, and the use of robotics. The example you gave there of the the room service where you have it, it but freeing and empowering again going back to those two words it's not it's not, it's not controlling it's that there has been a reduction in labor and in people willing to do some of the jobs so where it can be complemented with that through room service robotics it, it, it makes natural sense well sense recently is that the people really enjoy service which you didn't you know you'd never said that five years ago or ten years ago and you do feel that people really enjoy actually giving guests a special experience and everything now the real debate is about how to what people are spending money on is experiences so how do we enhance experiences so what you're seeing across the market is, is that there's a real uptake in festivals there's a real uptake in going to concerts state major stage uh, major venues and people are spending their money on those experiences now and want to but the expectation of what they have to deliver back has risen as well so how do we actually make sure we're constantly raising the bar all the time? And if you're honest, you know, I think operators have been phenomenal over the last few years and what they've delivered because you've had this perfect storm of 20% food inflation, Brexit, labor shortages, COVID, everything's thrown at them, but standards have definitely improved as the processes. So operators have, I think, shown an amazing resilience and flexibility and ability to adapt as true. Um, over the last few years, which actually has been impressive. If it's told us anything, we are very social. We do long for the company of others. And that's that's never going to stop, I don't think. There's no element of technology which will do it because we all had the, the family quizzes over Zoom or Teams. But then as soon as it came back to being safe to communicate with other people, we were visiting them in person. So that's something that's yeah. not going to change. And again, that's where I think hospitality makes a difference. Giving people good welcome makes people feel valued. And I think people understand that now more than they did pre-COVID. And with the role of people working within the business, not so much the, the consumers, but the people actually working in the businesses, where do you see the, how will kitchens in particular manage from the shortages that there are within of, of skilled labor coming through? Is part of the solution, again, going back to the robotics, not to beat on about that part, but I just found it very interesting that uh, will an element of that be or will it be more ghost kitchens or, or what, what would your take be? Yeah, a mixture of both. I think the, I think robotics will play a bigger and bigger role the whole time in that, doing the basic chores and being the basics. Um, I think that CPUs rather than ghost kitchens will grow, but mostly more sophisticated in what they can produce and deliver. And again, those have take, taken a step forward, and some are really, I mean, incredibly world class now. Some of the, some of the, what the CPUs do. Um, and actually, if you can get a, the good, op, get it right, then they can get the balance right. So it's just, the model's just changing and adapt. Um, so actually, labor is separated across more areas, if you like, uh, which make it all better, uh, make, the, make the model better, if that makes sense. So if you take a CPU, you don't need as many people as in 
10 different restaurants. You can get that delivery in the right way, you can reduce costs and give a better product. And in the old days where it, where it fell down was the product, now they've got that bit right. So we'll see more of that take off. Going back to one of our earlier points when it came to the partnerships and a, a phrase that I'd associate with you, Chris, that you've spoken about on many occasions is collaborative partnerships. Surely that was the case yeah. before, or what's what's changed that has forced this drive towards it? Because I can see it, I can feel it, but, but how has this come about? Well, it wasn't before. I mean, I mean, what we we always talked about collaboration, and we've always believed in collaboration and sharing. But quite frankly, people didn't. Um, people were focused on the, on the as criticism companies focused on themselves and kept relatively quite secret about what they're doing. And we didn't quite collaborate. And it was very much, as cultures were, much more what I call a command and control culture, which is actually what disengaged people. So you know, if you go back to look at some of the market research reports you know, from people like you know, major respected sources like Deloitte, et cetera, they'll talk about how actually many millennials had no trust in their leaders. They had no trust in their leaders because they didn't believe they had the right business ethics and did not approach running a business in the right way. And it's not because of bad people, it's because everything was so controlled and we use technology to control rather than enable. And I think that's the point. And we actually disengaged a whole generation, which is why you've had the struggle with the work, return to work, if that makes sense. And that's why people change. People have actually listened and learned. Actually, you know, COVID was incredibly painful for a lot of leaders. And having to lose a leader, lose people, make people redundant, and get for all that pain of closures. So they learnt, listened and they learnt and they changed, as you'd expect. Um, and actually, I think it brought back a whole value of people again. And people now are reinvesting in culture, trying to get the culture and values right. Because you know, the problem, to, if you go back to 2008, 2009, we had a financial crash. It brought a lot of process in to manage things. Every business got more controlled. The argument at the time was that debt would be with us for a generation. The reality that debt was paid off by 2014, but all the process and all those controls remained. So, and actually what happened is companies made greater and greater profits, created greater and greater wealth, and actually didn't create good environments, best one in the world. So, one best way of putting it, do you know what the average age of chief executive was in 2000? I'd hate to guess. Patrick. I'd hate to guess. In 2020, of a CEO, 58. Across all, business, all businesses, not just hospitality. 58. 62. And, and guess how many, how, how much that had increased in 20 years? Zero. <laughs> Quite the opposite. 18 years. So the average age had increased by 18. So what happened is that people were making more money. They're healthier, which is accepting. But chief execs were staying around longer. And, and actually, the average age of a board director was 58 and had gone up 17, year, 17 years in the last 17 years. So... What happened was you had a greater blockage, which means young talent couldn't come through. Now, you go the other way and you say to people, right, university children, we're just giving you debt. We're giving you debt of 30,000, 40,000 pounds coming to the workplace. And now we're going to say to you that it's going to take you an extra 20 years to get to a senior role where you're going to earn real wealth. And then you wonder why we get slightly disengaged and we don't actually see the road forward. So, you know, we, we got a lot wrong. It's, it's all, you know, it was no one's fault, but we didn't understand the ramifications or implications of what was going on around us. And I think, you know, in my day, you know, when, I, you know, when I first came to university in the dark ages, people actually believed you could be a director by the age of 30. 
that enables you to really go for things. If you believe it's going to take you, you're going to get somewhere of meaning quite quickly and you've, and you've got upward mobility. That's good. Now, you know, a couple of years ago, we've had the worst social mobility we've ever seen since the Victorian age. And you've got the biggest gap in society in terms of wealth since the Victorian age. And it's all tied in together. We've got to get the balance. It's all about balance. We've got to get the balance right now. And that's out of sync. And that's what we've got to get right as we go forward. So get the age, the average age down, make it more appealing. Well, in fairness, if I'm being fair, the counter argument is everyone's healthier now. And everyone, which means you don't want to just retire people off quickly because they've got experience. And part of the change is business wants experience over youth. But the irony is sometimes the best leaders are the young people we just give a chance to. Um, so this it is all about balance. It is about getting that right balance of culture where people can believe they have opportunity, where people can see up with social mobility, where there is an openness and transparency. And I think it's all these points that people become aware of that at least that collaboration you're talking about and openness in a way we didn't see before. So the balance between youth and uh, youth experience versus youth and enthusiasm rather than uh, experience and has the, 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 the scars of trade in the past. Yeah, but it's also about openness and partnership. I think people got fed up with a lack of trust. I mean, again, if you go back to pre-COVID, you know, research will show you that 67% of people did not trust their leaders, which is pretty awful. But again, you have to ask why. And a lot of that's about communication, isn't it? I mean, everyone controls their communication. It was always quite dull and stayed. You've got to be more open and genuine. Um, look, and it's not, again, it's not blame. It's all part of the process of learning and adapting to a new world as it evolves. But we've got, we got to accept we've got a lot of things wrong. And I think the point is people are learning now and adapting. So it is about how genuine you are, how authentic you are. Can you be trusted? Can you have an open conversation? Have you, are you kind? compassionate, caring. I mean, these, these are the things that people want to see. And with the businesses that you're dealing with, when you tell them to talk to your competitors uh, and to talk to others who they may have, let's say, not seen eye to eye in the past and all of a sudden the conversation is coming around, you're, we need to be talking. How are they reacting? Well, look, I'd say 80% are excellent and really open to it and really want to be part of it. So look, you, I mean, you were at the event last week with us on the collaboration piece. And the, the fact, you know, if I'm honest, we had a day of a strange strike. We had 76 people there, which is fabulous. We had 121 to come. If I'm honest, if we run that same event in 2019, it would probably be in a third of the numbers. So that probably tells you the reality of that. Now, there are still people who will not share. I mean, that, I mean that's just life. Um, and that's not going to change. But it's this, again, it's all part of a process and a discussion. And, and I think what's exciting now, there's a new narrative coming through. And that narrative will educate people. I mean, change takes time. It doesn't just happen. It's an evolution. So look, I think, I think it's an exciting period of time now that we can look forward to. So you think that you don't see there being too many blockers, as you said, it sounds like a 70, 30, that there will always be the 30% that's not going to be sharing and will still paddle their own boat. Whereas others realize that by sharing trading of information, then everyone gets stronger. Yeah, look, it's one of those really interesting discussions, which gets up, um, is about people don't like alpha behaviors. The traditional alpha behaviors have become unpopular. So it is hard on the alpha, the traditional alphas. And let's be fair, most of us are kind of, well, most people have grown up with that kind of thing. They've got to adapt to new ways to work. 
and think differently. And we've all had, and leadership's changed. So leadership's changed from past times when the leader was expected to be an alpha who charged over the hill and takes people with him. It is now about creating frameworks around power and support development of people. A massive change that's probably happened in the last two years, I'd suggest. So it's all about being progressive. And actually, if you look at the food service companies, I think they've been, again, very good at being progressive and changing. And actually, leaders of you know, the old school ways are far more about supporting talent and being progressive and helping creating better services as well. So a lot more, a lot more of the carrot and less of the stick, as you, you, you summed it up quite well, with command and control culture, that that sounds like it's, it's well on the way out that it is the arm around the shoulder and to nurture people and to bring them on so as they're going to be adding a lot more value to the business in the longer term. Yeah, look, I mean, I've always been a great believer that if you, if you can have fun at work, you're going to be more productive. If you can feel relaxed at work, you can be more productive. I always remember a law company showing me around their offices back in 2019. They're showing me, one of the partners are showing me around to show me how bad the culture was because everywhere, all the lawyers were coming in, weren't using the, the restaurant. We're sitting in their cubicles all day, just looking at a computer and then going home. And of course, when it came to the COVID, they wouldn't come back. You've got to, you've got to have social interaction is so important. We talked about it before we started this recording about conversation. I always say the art of conversation has been lost over the years often, but actually conversation is one of the most crucial skills you can have. It's a bit like networking. You know, networking is probably one of the, one of the best skills you can have in, in your armory. Yet most people don't know how to network. They just stay with the, the, the people they know and don't try and meet new people. Always creates new connections, new opportunities. And it's just that openness. It's an openness of mind. And I think what you've got to have now is that kind of growth mentality that we're constantly learning and growing all the time, which is interesting. As a, as a father of a 14-year-old girl, I can, yeah, I can yeah. well understand exactly what you're saying, that there is, there is a, an, an attachment with technology for for younger people which we can look at and we can say well i know i i know i say it all the time uh, well in my day that this wouldn't have happened or wouldn't have. but ultimately what we've said before or what we described before as soft skills the ability to converse the ability to have a conversation the ability to disagree with someone that that uh, has been lost in the past and that we haven't been able to uh, openly express our feelings for fear of either rejection or someone else disagreeing. There is a real fear and a challenge with that. And I'm not too sure what the, the, the outcome of addressing that would be, because I know that there is a shift that I see a lot of, of with the nurturing aspect of encouraging people to, to make mistakes, fail. If you fail, it is, it is a good thing. I think failure is a great thing. No, no one's failed more than I have. I failed thousands of thousands of times but actually it's only through failure do you learn that's no that's the first point and if you look at sports players you know they often will say that losing a match is the best thing that can happen to them because actually it's only from losing do you learn because actually when you win you, you celebrate the win and you move on and you don't improve um, and it's true and it's the same in business i mean i always say some of the worst times cultures i've ever seen is when people come as being the most successful because you get lazy, you, you get up your own egotism, you know, you believe your own beliefs. Actually, it's only when you're, it's only when things are difficult and do you really focus on what really matters and what's really important. Now, the best thing in business, I think most people always say is friendship and culture. And that when, I, when you, and there's no better feeling when you have a good team together, 
It's one of the nicest feelings in the world. And that's actually one of the reasons why I love nurturing young people, because young people have a lovely can-do attitude. They bounce back. They have their hearts in the right place. There's no real baggage. And it's lovely to see. And it's lovely to see those kind of attitudes, which is really what hospitality is all about, isn't it? Entrepreneurs Network. That's something that you've created recently. Tell me about it. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is being led by Mike Day, who I've known for years. Mike is the former founder of Intercater, before I had contract catering business as well. Uh, so he's been a serial entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneurs, I think the journey for entrepreneurs is far harder now than it ever was. When I, when I first set up, it was easy. You had a telephone, basically just a telephone, a desk and a pen, and off you go. And, you, and, you, and, I, and I always remember I expected to win business straight away. You can't do that now. It's 10 times harder for these people, for people. And particularly for products, when I see products, how hard they have to work to get registered or become a supplier to a company, it's incredibly difficult. And there's some exceptional entrepreneurs out there. So what we want to do is, A, create a framework that helps entrepreneurs, encourages them, gives them a place where they can come and learn and listen, that brings together investors, advisors, corporates, because corporates need to access entrepreneurs too. Bob Cotton uh, was always a great advocate that the corporate needs the entrepreneur just as much as the entrepreneur needs the corporate. The two have a perfect marriage. They need each other because the entrepreneur will actually give the corporate new ideas and, you, and, you, and challenge them. And vice versa, the entrepreneur needs corporate for obvious reasons too. So how do you get that balance between the two? And again, that's what we want to do. If we can bring a, create a network, a community, it's all about community. To me, everything's about community. If you bring a community together that can collaborate, share, knowledge share, and actually do work together, then that's a healthy thing. And I think entrepreneurs are the heart of the economy and half of our industry. It's important. Two last questions, Chris, because you've been very generous with your time. There's the three biggest challenges as a sector with food service that we're facing. What are they? Okay, I'll split that into three parts. The, the biggest challenge for a lot of the commercial operators are now setting the benchmark because the expectation of the consumer is rising all the time. So people's expectations of what they want when they go to an event, whether it's a token and rugby match, whether it's a pop concert, whether it's a festival, is growing all the time. So how the, all, all the operators are being challenged to improve and raise their bar. That's part one. In B&I, I do think the challenge here is that I don't think that 19-minute lunch break is going to particularly change very much, but you've got lower densities. But how do you improve your services and change your services to create a broader a broader service and a higher service that people really relate to? And I think it's the same challenges in commercial sense. Everyone's expectations have gone up. So how does the BNI market now adapt to that? One of the discussions, one of the problems with Companies saying we want people to come back to work. That's great. You have to give them something to come back to work. It wasn't that simple? And, and that thing that's going to be the answer, part of the answer of that, not the whole answer, part of the answer of that is culture, value, social connectivity, and raising the bar and the services they get. If you look then in the education sector, again, that's going to be a real challenge for lots of people, but it's about health and nutrition, fighting obesity, improving food service all the time. And that's going to be about budgets as well. Because I think for a lot of the schools, it's a real struggle. But it's about how, to, how do we improve that? And again, food waste as well, how that is impacted as well. So you'd say consumer expectations, number one. Health, uh, well-being. Health and well-being, yeah. And then with the waste aspect of it. Yep. If food service had a hero, and you can't name yourself, who would it be and why? 
go on. I mean, the, the good thing about the food service has lots of heroes, actually. And actually, there's, there's a whole range of people who made a real difference, I think. So I will take the fifth on that one rather than naming one person and just say the whole I think the sector has been incredibly impressive. It's easy, it's always easy to criticize anybody, isn't it? But I think the sector itself has really performed admirably well over the last few years. Sitting on the fence. I am absolutely sitting on the fence. That's okay. That's okay. Chris, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Lots of words of wisdom there. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing them with uh, with me and with our listeners. Today. That's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Food Service Matters. A huge thank you to my guest, Chris Shepherdson, for the opportunity to hear his insightful views on key developments and challenges in the industry from his extensive experience in the food service sector. If you'd like to continue the conversation on one of the topics that Chris talked about, leave us a comment below. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and watch out for coming installments. You've been listening to me, Patrick McDermott, on Food Service Matters, the podcast where we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry today.